Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, I think episode number 326. Um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, I'm crazy excited about this one. Um, in these strange lockdown times, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do podcast-wise. And you will have heard me experimenting a bit with the um, the album playback a few weeks back, the repeated isolation drunk cast, because essentially... I want to try and avoid, like there were guests I had lined up prior to lockdown that I don't want to just have on over Zoom. I'd rather be in the room with them and be face to face. So what I'm trying to do is where I can, only doing Zoom ones with people I already know. So I already know there's going to be that connection and we can still get the the level of podcast that that I, I, I want to to offer to you guys. So that's the explanation there. And that's why... I've got a return guest this week, and it's Rutger Bregman. Now, I mentioned it in the podcast, so I won't go into crazy detail, but the podcast I did with Rutger, the first one, which was episode 190, if you didn't catch it, is probably the podcast, I was thinking about it when prepping for this one, it's probably the podcast that's had the biggest impact on on my life, on my genuine personal real life. Because that podcast and his book, A Utopia for Realists, just opened my eyes to a few things and changed the way I think. It's funny because it also got me one of the bits of negative feedback I'm proudest of because someone tweeted at me. No, not tweeted. I think it's a review on iTunes, which I rarely delve into that. But they got angry because they said, I just agree with my guests and kiss their ass. I'll change my opinions completely to agree with their guests. And the example he gave was an outlook I had before the Rutger one, which directly conflicted something that Rutger said and I agreed with. And the truth there is, I did previously think completely differently. And then reading Rutger's book and seeing the history, the examples he gave, um, I touched upon it in the podcast. That's why I'm being a bit mysterious here. But yeah, essentially, in brief, I have always put, as a lot of you will know, I've always put a lot of weight on working the hardest and being self-motivated and working harder than everyone else and there was something in Rutger's book and in the podcast that opened me up to that not necessarily being the as black and white as I maybe originally saw it anyway it's why I was excited to have Rutger back on because when I had him on the first time I'd read half his book I loved our conversation I read the rest of the book adored it and I loved these ones that have a a big impact on me Uh, Wim Hof is another one the the episode with Wim Hof, which was, let me just scroll back and have a look when it was. I think it was 130-something. It was number 136. And, yeah, that changed me massively because just just before I've recorded this, I've just had an ice-cold bath um, after a workout. And I have I have ice-cold sh- showers almost every day, definitely every every day I work out. And I've been doing that for, for years now. And I go for ice-cold swims and... God, I adore it. It's it's my favourite thing to do. So it, it's one of them where it's it's that had a big impact, but that is also a podcast that I will admit that some of my I I also you also get educated by feedback on podcasts. So I had Wim on. I was in awe of him. I got some some f- f- feedback from some people. I read some more articles that people sent that questions some of his methods, and I think Wim is someone who I still think is absolutely amazing. But I do now think that there's some bits in his methods that 
a mind blowing and and really groundbreaking. There's some bits that are a bit a bit nonsense and a bit silly, but that doesn't mean it discredits all of it. Anyway, I'm rambling and rambling on. Um, Rutger has got a new book out called A Humankind, and it's about it's a hopeful history. It's called Humankind: A Hopeful History, and it's about the fact that he thinks humans are good which is a weird opinion in the modern time. So let's just jump into that. I won't ramble on anymore. I'll be back at the end. If you've not heard the first one with Rutger, I'd recommend going and listen to it maybe before this one. There's not like spoilers or anything, so you can listen in any order. But yeah, give it a listen. And as you you, you know, with these ones that... Like Rutger's one ended up being one of the most less than two episodes of that year, but it's because it was so good and I've raved about it so much. But the ones that don't have a huge n- name are the ones that people will scroll past, often scroll past on iTunes or wherever else. So if you enjoy this as much as I do, and as much as Buddy Peace, I've got a message off Buddy Peace, my producer, to say that he wants m- me and Rutka to just start a regular podcast and he will he will produce it and do all the work because he, he loves these two conversations that we've had. So yeah, if you enjoy it as much as Buddy, then tweet about it and shout about it. You know that when that happens on these ones, I will end up screenshotting a load of them and and resharing them myself. So, yeah. Before we go on, actually, um, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, tomorrow, which is Thursday and Friday, um, I'm doing the hashtag pod Bible listening party. Um, So on Thursday at 7 p.m., we're all all listening to, to episode one of North Star Rising, which is a science fiction podcast that I narrate. Um, and me, Mike Biffle, who's the creator, a load of the, the cast will all be tweeting along. And we all listen at once. Basically, we all press play at 7pm. And you can fire any questions during or at the end. And hopefully all of us will tweet some interesting behind-the-scenes information. And yeah, it's a real cool experience. And then on the Friday... So the Friday is the 22nd. It's my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, dad. Um, I'll be doing the the same thing at 8.30, Pod Bible listening party, um, for my episode of Distraction Pieces with Joe Gilgan. So we'll, I know that's a favourite of a lot of you. So if you, f- you fancy revisiting it and asking me questions and going back and forth online with everyone else who's listening as well, it's not just about tweeting along and interacting with the 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 people behind the podcast it's about talking to other people listening to the guys at pod bible magazine so yeah that's all they're doing them tuesday wednesday thursday and friday next week so go to pod bible's uh instagram or twitter page and you'll see all the lineups and who's on there's there's a michael smiley episode of insane in the membrane there's the football ramble lads there's drunk women solving crime there's loads um i've almost listed them all now so i might as well remember them uh white wine question time giant um but yeah loads to check out hopefully you'll enjoy this spread the word grab the book so this is episode 326 of the distraction pieces podcast with rutger bregman Ready. Well, let's begin. 
Right, I'm joined today by returning guest, Rutger Bregman. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, I'm good. I'm so glad to be back. Really enjoyed I, it last time. So, I, uh, I really did. Uh, your first visit is still one of my favourite episodes, and that conversation alongside your book, uh, A Utopia for Realists, had real changing impacts on on me and, and my life. Like, uh, uh, listeners will know that prior to that conversation, I was a big proponent of um, of insatiable work ethic, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I still, I still stand by a lot of that, but I've now done a lot of work to kind of push and, f- and focus on the importance of, of leisure and the importance of time mm-hmm. away from that. And I think that couldn't be a more appropriate kind of place to start given the situation we're in. I think when lockdown mm-hmm. started in so many places, um, again, I think I mentioned last time, my brother has a master's in philosophy and he he, he guides me on a, a lot of stuff. He'd been talking to me about a lot of the things that feature it, in Utopia for, for Realists around that time. And one of the things he, he said at the start of this was the problem that we're going to have a lot is people trying to replace work with work rather than accept mm-hmm. that this is a different situation and an un- unusual situation because we're used to feeling worthless if we're not w- working. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the weird society exactly. that we've built where all our worth is valued on that rather than on other things like our, our fulfilling our, our artistic needs or our leisure needs or educating ourselves in, in different ways. Yeah. So, so how have you found lockdown, I guess, and what have been your kind of observations at this stage? Yeah. Well, per- personally, not much has changed, you know. It's just that during a book tour now, you don't have to travel, which I, <laughs> yeah. I must admit, I, I, I rather like that. Yeah. Um, and that it's just amazing to see that, and this happens during every crisis, I suppose, is that things that have always been the case are now becoming so incredibly clear, right, that you can't deny it anymore. Yeah. You know, for example, there are lists being drawn up in country after country with the so-called vital professions, right? Yeah. This happened everywhere, in the US, in the Netherlands, in the UK. And you look at those lists and you wonder, you know, where are the hedge fund managers and where are the bankers and where yeah. are, you know, they're not really there or the tech specialists or that help divert, uh, you know, money flows for multinationals. Yeah. No, it's just sort of very straightforward. Nurses, garbage collectors, teachers, etc. Exactly those people who often get paid the least, you know, have insecure yeah. working conditions and now take the biggest risks in the in the fight against the virus, right? And, and, so and, and those that world. get looked down upon the most. Again, it was, it was exactly that. As soon as I saw all of the praise and rightful love for those working in, in retail, in supermarkets yeah. and things like that, it made, exactly, it made yeah. me think of the example in Utopia for Realists of the yeah. garbage men in New York who who were had no yeah. respect until they went on strike and then are seen as absolute heroes. And it's a similar thing here. Previously, people would look down their nose a bit at, at, at working in retail, at being a garbage yeah. man, at all these different things. Yeah. Whereas now, it's, as you say, rightfully praised as absolutely essential to our, our society. Yeah. In the first weeks, I think, of the pandemic, we've seen a redistribution of respect, right? Yeah. Is that there's a huge amount of respect for these people and we're all so grateful and we really uh, realize that we depend on them. I think that just redistributing respect is not enough. You know, now we need to take a step further and maybe also have a redistribution of power and of money. You know, it's, it's seems ridiculous that the people who do the most important work also often earn the least. Right. So, um, 
this is this is the big question obviously what what will this crisis mean for our future and i think you can easily see this see us going down a very dark path right throughout history crises have always been abused by those in power you know think about yeah. how 9-11 was sort of the start for two illegal wars, war on terror, massive government surveillance uh, by the, uh, you know, of citizens. Think about, you know, the rise of Hitler, you know, in 1933. Uh, it started basically with uh, a crisis. The burning of the Reichstag was, was abused by, yeah. by Hitler to grab emergency powers, right? So we could see something like that again. And, and I mean, in Hungary, it already seems to be happening. But then it could also go in the other direction. I think yeah. uh, uh, there are also, you know, really exciting and hopeful times that this crisis might be different than the crisis of 2008. And that now ideas have entered the mainstream that used to be dismissed, you know, just, just a couple of years ago. Whether you talk about universal basic income or a stronger innovative state or, you know, cracking down on tax paradises, you know. It seems to me that the age of neoliberalism is ending and that the big question is what will replace it. Yeah, completely. And uh, I mean just touching upon the 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 cracking down on 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 tax um avoidance. It's it's one of the mm. things that since our podcast was delightful to see you blow up online um at the Davos yeah. conference yeah. um which is a world economic forum and you sat there in front of everyone and called them out number one on you know 1500 private jets flying everyone in um to talk about doing goods and 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 helping and then as said the complete avoidance of talking about the rich not paying taxes or not paying their fair share and stuff like that so mm-hmm. The the fact that stuff like that goes viral and gets attention gives me some hope because it feels a lot of the time, and we'll we'll get onto this with your your new book. A lot yeah. of the time, the news and particularly social media will really get in a storm over negative stuff, mm-hmm. and and rather than look, here's some positive stuff. Here's someone saying, here's what a solution could be, and and things like mm-hmm. that. So. I guess, how was that when that all blew up online? Obviously, after that, you had the Fox News moment where you yeah. called out, out Carson, yeah. uh, Tucker Carlson, which, again, was a wonderful thing. For, for those who don't know, you kind of, yeah, you on air kind of said, look, look who you're funded by, look who you're paid by, look who s- supports you. And, yeah, it was a hell of a moment. Mm-hmm. How's all that been? Uh, very strange and very weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was I was invited to Davos to to talk about my book, you know, the previous book, Utopia mm-hmm. for Realists. And uh, back then, basic income was becoming a more popular idea, you know, the idea of just giving everyone a monthly grant that's enough to pay for your basic needs and to completely eradicate poverty, especially in sort of Silicon Valley circles or entrepreneurs. Yeah. They thought it might be a good idea. So that's why I was invited. And uh, at some point, the moderator asked me a question about poverty and about basic income. And... I had decided to do something different because uh, I had become really uncomfortable being at that conference. You know, you hear people talking about all these wonderful things, you know, whether it's feminism or climate change, but they never talk about taxes, right? And they never talk about inequality or at least at their own role in, you know, making sure that the system stays as it is, right? Yeah. So um, it was the last day of the conference. I was happy that I could almost go home. And my (laughs) wife had... The day before I said, you know, Rutger, you can't just go on that panel and promote your book, right? 
this is this is your your one chance that you're there. Maybe you should tell them what you're really thinking. So uh, <laughs> she convinced me, and, and and that's why I prepared their short speech. And I got the <laughs> I got the question from the moderator, and basically ignored the question and gave this speech about <laughs> about as you, as you mentioned, you know, fifteen hundred private yets coming in to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about how we're wrecking the planet, right? Yeah, and. At that moment, there were very few people watching the live stream, so I didn't expect much of it. Uh, but I was just sort of happy that I, you know, sort of could ease my conscience and could go back, back and said, well, at least I told them what I thought. And, and nothing much happened over the weekend. But then on Monday, some website picked it up and it completely blew up. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so that amazing. So was, that was really strange to experience. But also, I mean, uh, I was also happy with it because I was basically saying what millions of people around the globe were already thinking, right? And yeah. I was, I was, I was glad that this was the big, biggest thing that came out of Davos this year. You know, they yeah. have this whole PR team, like they pay, pay millions of dollars for their PR, and then this one viral clip of this stupid Dutch historian <laughs> goes viral <laughs> and gets more attention than anything else. Yeah, I thought that was pretty or, hilarious. Or, or that's one of the things that I've enjoyed, and 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 the Tucker Carlson bit is 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 evidence of this is there's there's, there's such a problem in modern journalism or modern i guess opinion sharing in Hmm. often a lack of preparation and a lack of research and i mean i discussed this with a a russell brand on the first ever episode of this podcast because i i kind of Mm -hmm. said i love a lot of his ideas but the thing that kills me is he was going into these big opportunities without having done his appropriate research so he's speaking Mm -hmm kind of blindly but you're a historian (laughs) so so research is something you know very well and that's what kind of shone Mm. on the fox news thing with tucker carlson was you you'd done your research into the backers the funding the things he was personally involved in or paid by and that's what kind of made it such a an unavoidable confrontation i guess was that that any time he came back with anything you could say well Here's who pays your bills. Here's who does this. Here's who's who yeah. sponsors yeah. this particular show and this kind of thing. It, it it meant he couldn't just do what often happens in popular media and popular journalism now of sh- shout someone down and they can't come back because they've prepared maybe their first line and then yeah yeah yeah. And the other big difference, obviously, was that I mean he didn't air it, and he didn't air it because I, he thought that I didn't have my own recording. Amazing of the interview, right? Yeah. So you got to imagine that this all happened in Amsterdam and it was 2 a.m. in the night, right? Because there's a six-hour time difference with New York. And um, I, I went to the interview in, in a, you know, a totally empty studio and I was there with only uh, the producer. And I told him, he's a, he's a young guy and, and, you know, we had a bit of fun beforehand. And I said, you know what, I'm going to tell Tucker Carlson the truth, but they'll probably never air it anyway. So... Uh, maybe you're the only one who'll be hearing it, but you know, well, let's have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I asked him whether he could record the whole thing on his site so that I could at least show it to my friends and colleagues, you know, to, to, to uh, you know, give evidence that I uh, uh, took a Carlson the truth. And he said, no, I can't do it. You know, I don't have the means to do that on our site. So I went to, into the interview and you know, was quite relaxed about it. I just thought, you know, I'll, I'll tell him the truth. And then he completely exploded. And I thought it was hilarious. I really yeah. thought it was hilarious that he just, <laughs> he, he went nuts, right? He started shouting at me and I don't know. Well, people can look it up. Yeah. 
And then the interview was over and I thought, well, this is going to be a good anecdote for birthday parties, you know, in the next, <laughs> the next couple of years. And then the producer came out of the, you know, his room and he said, I, I recorded the whole thing with my iPhone. And I said, oh, well, great. Could you share it with me? Yeah. So he airdropped it on my phone Amazing. and I looked at it for a little bit and I said, oh, this is, this is funny. I'll post it on Twitter. So I immediately wanted to post it on Twitter. But it didn't work out because, uh, you know, I didn't have proper internet. And I said, you know, let's just have a beer or something. So we drank a beer and uh, then I got a cab back home. And, you know, it was 4 a.m. or something like that when I when I was home. Went to sleep, then woke up again, looked at the video again. And th only then I realized, holy shit, this is like a hand grenade that I've got on my phone here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is going to be pretty big probably when we publish it. Uh, so then two weeks later, after we had consulted four lawyers and <laughs> made sure that sort of the, the, the Murdoch empire wouldn't destroy me, <laughs> yeah. uh, we felt confident enough to actually publish it. Um, so yeah, that was another, yeah, it was a pretty hilarious, hilarious thing to experience. I love it that all of these things are kind of natural occurrences, if you know what I mean. If, if, yeah, if, yeah, if the, yeah. The, the, the fact that he happened to be able to to record it and then you happen to not have the internet to post it initially when it might not have been yeah, yeah, yeah. the wisest well, I mean, or safest. You prepare, <laughs> yeah, of course you prepare what you're going to say, right? You know what you're going to say when you go in the interview, but you can't really engineer sort of a viral moment. You can't yeah. really engineer that. I mean, I was, I thought they, they would never air it or that it would just stay nice to me or just say, okay, well then the interview is over. Bye-bye. Have a yeah. good time. And then, you know, then it would be nothing, right? Uh, but he exploded. I don't know. I must have touched a nerve. I love it. So, um, I mean, it brings us on to your n new book, mm -hmm. Humankind, um, A Hopeful History. Mm -hmm. And I said this when you were on the first time. I went into Utopia for Realist kind of sceptical because, you know, I thought, is this going to be a bit a bit hippie, a bit, a bit unrealistic, mm -hmm. a bit pie in the sky? And, man, I went into this book even more sceptical because of the times... <laughs> that we live in essentially you're putting forward the idea that humans are by our very nature good and really good and positive and and humans are indeed kind but that's a tough sell when with the rise of trump with brexit with the right throughout europe racism mm -hmm. spiking all these different things that we hear all the time um so how did you kind of feel about approaching this and knowing that it was going to mm -hmm. be, I guess, a, a hard sell and a hard yeah. hard argument, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew that it was going to be a hard sell. And that's also why I knew it was going to have to be a big book, right? Yeah. yeah. Because the idea that most people deep down are actually selfish is so deeply entrenched in our culture. Yeah. And it's, it is shared by people who are religious or atheists. It's shared by people who are left-wing or right-wing or poor or rich. You know, it is actually, I think, one of the most common and strong ideas in Western culture. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks, you know, the Greek historian Thucydides, who already, you know, gave us this view of human nature. Or you look at Orthodox Christianity, right? St. Augustine talking about how we're all born as sinners, you know, the idea of original sin. Then you read the Enlightenment philosophers, and you maybe you assume that there must be have been some break with Orthodox Christianity and the Enlightenment philosophers, right? But actually, mm -hmm. their view of human nature was quite similar. You know, David Hume, Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, or Thomas Hobbes, the famous British philosopher, they all shared a quite cynical, pessimistic view of human nature. And then you look at the system that we've been living in for the past, well, say, 40 years, right? The sort of neoliberal capitalism. 
And you realize that the central dogma of this system is most people are selfish, right? Sort of the greed is good idea, right? Just deal with it. People are selfish and then design your whole society around it. So, yeah, I realized it had to be a big book. But then the reason I started writing it is that something really, really exciting has been happening in science in, I'd say, the past 15 to 20 years. So scientists from really diverse disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, psychologists, have all moved from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more positive and more optimistic view of human nature. And at one point, I was interviewing a psychologist. Uh, Her name is Marie Lindegaard, and she's done some terrific work on the so-called bystander effect. You know, I think some listeners will probably have heard of it. You know, the, 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 the idea of that, when something happens in the streets, say uh, someone's attacked or someone's drowning, and a lot of people see it happening, that no one really helps because they're like, you know, it's not my responsibility. Someone else can interfere, right? This is called the bystander effect in psychology. And, and millions of students have, have heard about this, have learned about it. You know, it's still in every textbook. So Marie Lindegaard, this professor, uh, was telling me about her new research where she didn't do l- laboratory experiments, but looked at how people behaved in real life, you know, because we have so many cameras cameras in cities these days. She could look at the footage, right? And she had a database of a thousand real incidents that happened in London, in Copenhagen, in Amsterdam, and in Cape Town. And she discovered that in reality, real people in real situation help each other 90% of the time, 90%. So this whole bystander effect, well, it's pretty much the opposite, actually. The more people see something happen, the more likely it is that someone will actually help you, right? So it's it's it was really the end of a whole research tradition, basically. And I was sort of discussing this with her. And I said, um, you know, I've, I've also just been talking to a biologist, Franz de Waal, you know, who's written this wonderful book about empathy among animals, etc., and uh, told her about new theories in evolutionary biology, that actually biologists have come to believe that uh, we have evolved to be friendly, what they literally called survival of the friendliest. And she said to me at that point, oh, my God, so it's happening there as well. And that's when I realized this is a book, you know, I should sort of try and connect the dots. And yeah, because all these brilliant experts, they're so specialized, right? They've, they're really good at, you know, being the expert in their field, but often they don't notice what's going on in the field next to them. Right. And uh, that's why I wrote the book, just to connect the dots and show that something bigger is going on here. I love that. And and I love you start the book with a quote from Chekhov saying, man, mm-hmm. man will become better when you show him what he is like. And it, it feels like a key theme going along in the book. Because again, the book, it's not claiming that everything's w- wonderful and everything's fine. No. It's showing, you show a lot of times the reasons that things are negative and that people do act mm-hmm. act badly. And part of that is w- what we're shown and what we're l- led to believe. And it all becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if, mm-hmm. if we believe, as we often do, that everyone is selfish and everyone is out for themselves, then we start to react in that way because we feel that is the way that everyone else will react. So yeah, it feels exciting and important that y- if there's that turn in in science and in research that we could start to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy in the opposite direction yeah, show yeah, people yeah. that and we're good we need and turn a, them around yeah and maybe we need a turn in music and the arts as well right? yeah because if you look at famous novels 
so often they have a quite pessimistic view of human nature as well. In the yeah. book, I give the example of Lord of the Flies, right? The classic yeah. British novel about kids shipwrecking on an island. And initially they, you know, try to set up a democracy of sorts and work together. But that, you know, quickly breaks down. And at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead. They're bullying each other. And, you know, it's this horrible story about what supposedly kids deep down are really like, right? Yeah. And William Golding, the author, received the Nobel Prize for it. So that's why for the book, I sort of asked myself the question, well, this is fiction, but what would happen in reality, right? Yep. Do we know what actually happens when kids shipwreck on an island? So I started on this journey where I went looking for a real-life Lord of the Flies. And um, after a couple of months of research, I actually found one. So that was one of the most fun parts of the book to write. It, it, is, it, um, it blew my mind reading this bit about Captain hmm. Peter Warner. And, and, and it, it was amazing that this isn't the most well-known story of recent yeah, times. It, but yeah, continue, yeah. continue. I don't want to interrupt there. Yeah. Well, um, it all started basically with me Googling on the internet, you know, just typing in a keyword like Lord of the Flies and, and real Lord of the Flies, children on an island. And after a while, I stumbled upon an obscure blog where this story was told, you know, it's just a short paragraph that supposedly in 1977, six kids had shipwrecked on an island, survived for more than a year and were still friends. You know, and that it was a happy story of friendship and resilience, etc. And I thought, oh my God, if this is true, then then why don't we know this? I mean, this must be huge. So I started looking for this, but every time I, you know, I found the same words, the same short paragraph, right? And at some point, I started to become suspicious. I thought, you know, maybe this didn't really happen. Maybe it's just a story that people tell to themselves on the internet. But you know, yeah, it so often happens. But it's just I don't know, fake news or something like that. But then I had. I was just really lucky. I was I was looking for articles in um, in newspapers from the 1970s, but by accident I had typed in the 1960s. So I was really looking in the 1960s, and then I discovered this article in the Australian newspaper, The Age, uh, that said that six kids had been rescued from the island called Ata near Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean, by an Australian captain named Peter Warner. And that they were still alive and that they were, you know, still friends, etc. And the, the paper said this will become one of the great classics of the sea, this story. Yeah. So I thought, oh, my God, this did actually happen. And then I realized, you know, this captain, he might still be alive, right? The, the guy who rescued these kids. I mean, he must be, I calculated, around 90 years old right now. And, and I also realized, well, maybe the kids are still alive. Maybe I could find them and track them down. So long story short, a couple of months later... I was in Australia with my wife uh, for a book tour, you know, to, to talk about Utopia Realist, the previous book. And I said to my publisher, can I have a couple of days off? Because I have a story that I, you know, <laughs> want to find out about more. And so I rented a car in Brisbane and, and, and we drove three hours to the south. And there, you know, on the side of a, of a lonely road <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, there was this guy, Peter Warner, the captain. And he told us the story of what really happened on that island in 1965 and 1966. And he also put me in contact with Mano, Mano Toto, who's one of the original Lord of the Flies children and who also lives in Brisbane and is still friends with Peter up until this day. They're still the best of friends. You know, they drink Amazing. beers together, together, etc. They still go at sailing together. It's really... So they, they taught me the real Lord of the Flies story. And, you know, if this would be a Hollywood movie, people would say... 
this is horrible. You know, this is worse than love, actually. This is so unrealistic. This is yeah. so sentimental. You know, that is not how people would actually behave. But then, you know, sometimes reality is stronger than fiction, right? It's just, yeah. uh, it's really the story of resilience and friendship. Yeah, that gives you a lot of hope yeah, uh, I, for the human species. I love it. It's and, and it's fascinating because the theme that comes along in the book a lot is that the thing that's in our, our nature is kindness. Where we go away from that is the changes that we make and the, the supposed developments that we've had over the years. Um, mm-hmm. From looking at, at, at cavemen and, and all sorts of, of things like that and seeing that when we were wandering kind of hunter-gatherers, there mm. was a friendliness, a community. It was when we started to, to settle down into t- t- townships and civilizations and have hierarchies yeah. that that started to change a lot. And people who are going into the book or even are listening now, the first thing that might come to mind to argue against the innate good nature of of man is is Nazis, is Auschwitz, is, mm-hmm. is, is these things. But the point that you make quite quickly in that section is that the telling part of this is that these things happened in highly advanced civilized societies they didn't happen in in the jungle in tribes that hadn't been exposed mm-hmm. in i mean it didn't happen in the barest form of of humanity it happened in these in these supposedly advanced societies so how was that kind of getting having more and more realizations that the things that we feel put us ahead of of how we once were may in fact be responsible for all the negativity or a lot of the negativity that's happened yeah. throughout history. Yeah. Well, obviously, one of the ironies of writing a book about human kindness and human cooperation or the good that is within human nature is that you have to go on for hundreds and hundreds of pages about the dark chapters in our yeah. history, right? You cannot get around the Auschwitz or the Holocaust question. You really have to confront it, right? And then you realize that actually... Human beings are not only one of the friendliest species on the earth, uh, but also one of the cruelest. So to start with the friendliest first, right? If you want to know what sort of the true superpower is of us as a species, well, it's clear that we're not we're not that smart or anything, right? Individually, we're not. Uh, if you have an intelligence test and you let a toddler, a human toddler, compete with a pig, then often the pig wins, you know? The pig is just yeah. better at arithmetic and and logical reasoning and that kind of thing uh which is something you should keep in mind you know the next time you eat bacon uh i mean that's another book but Um, again just to touch upon that it's amazing because the the thing i love about your books is that all of this is proven the studies are shown and like yeah yeah a good eighth of the book is is the notes at the back giving all the yeah, yeah, all the yeah. kind of here's, here's where the yeah. research is from here's the information it's yeah. not just casually saying pigs are more intelligent than toddlers do you know what i mean no, like, no no no, no. Here, scientists have done a lot of work and studies yeah, yeah. that prove that yeah 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 so individually we're not that smart no we're not that strong either i mean neanderthals you know who still lived like 40 50 000 years ago were probably stronger than mm-hmm. we are now uh we're not even very good at climbing trees. So the, the big question is obviously why did we conquer the globe? You know, why didn't cows do it or penguins or orangutans or chimpanzees, right? Why do we build pyramids and castles and why do we go to the moon? You know, where's, why is there not a chimpanzee on the moon? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and 
I think the most convincing explanation that scientists have come up with is that we're simply really good at cooperating. We're, yeah. we're really friendly, right? So we, we find it relatively easy to trust one another and to work together on a scale that other species just can't. And um, this is, you know, what I earlier called this process of survival of the friendliest. So there's an extraordinary amount of genetic and also archaeological evidence that actually for thousands of years, it was the friendliest among us who got the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. You know, imagine Donald Trump in prehistory. He wouldn't have survived for long. That's really, (laughs) anthropologists are really sure about that. Because if you were selfish and narcissistic, the group wouldn't like you. They would expel you and you would die alone, right? Mm. Or if you were being really nasty, they would just kill you together, right? So it was humbleness and friendliness was really a prerequisite to survive, right? It was, it was really important. As a leader also, you know, it was one of the central leadership skills to be humble, which is, I mean, very different right now. Now, often in politics, you have the survival of the shameless, right? The more yeah. shameless you are, the more narcissistic you are, often the better you do, yeah. uh, which is something that, I don't know, to think about. But then what's important to, to realize is that there is also a dark side to this friendliness, right? The dark side of friendliness is groupish behavior or tribal behavior that we find it hard to go against the group. And, you know, we talked about this last time uh, when, we, when we were talking about, you know, how do utopian ideas become reality? Well, it often starts with people who are first dismissed as unrealistic, unreasonable, and are seen as unfriendly, right? I just read this wonderful book by Helen Lewis, who, who you, by the way, might have to have on the podcast sometimes. Yeah. I, I, it was a terrific book about feminism, you know, in the history of feminism in Great Britain, where she sort of tells these stories about how women actually got the right to vote. And the book is called Difficult Women because these women were not friendly, you know, they were not like <laughs> yeah. friendly women because progress often doesn't come from friendly people. And then the other dark truth about us is that so often, Things that we tend to see as good, like friendliness and loyalty and comradeship, are also implicated in our worst crimes, right? So if you ask yourself the question, why do soldiers keep on fighting? Why do terrorists blow themselves up, you know? Then often, uncomfortably, you often find the answer that they do it out of loyalty for someone else, you know? Yeah. Because they're actually believing they're doing something good for their friends or for their families. So I don't want to give people the impression that I've written some kind of happy clappy book about the power of kindness. And if only we would be kinder, then all the problems would be solved. Yeah. But I am saying that we need to update our view of human nature to a more realistic one. Yeah. Because then we can design our society in a different way, right? We do not have to assume all the time that people are selfish anymore. Uh, And we can build very different kind of schools, different kind of prisons, different kind of democracies or you name it to actually try and bring out the best in other people. Yeah. Uh, But then at the same time, you're absolutely right. You also have to recognize that we're capable of the most horrible cruelties that you won't see elsewhere in the animal kingdom, right? I've never heard of a penguin that says, let's lock up another group of penguins, you know, that's and kill them all, right? That is a really typically human thing to think of. But but that was was one of the big uh, breakthrough moments in in the book for me was when you were talking about the... um, the Nazi who was on trial and, 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 and the trying to find where his evilness came from because he was depressingly mm-hmm. normal and depressingly he wasn't the villain that we yeah. see on the TV Adolf screen. Eichmann, yeah. yeah. And again it goes yeah. back to the, the TV representation of things. And the 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 
the revelation that came out of the research is something that I've always been obsessed with as an actor as well, is that uh, the bad guys don't know that they're bad guys. They think mm-hmm. that they're doing good. As you said, they've got a loyalty to someone that has convinced them that what they're doing is good. So once again, yeah. in their, even even the baddest of the bad in their nature are trying ignorantly or incorrectly yeah. to do good, to, to do what they yeah, think yeah, is yeah, good. Yeah, so yeah. that was a powerful thing. And this thing is an there. uncomfortable finding, you know. It's not a happy finding. I mean, yeah. it's... I mean, you have to wonder about yourself, you know, am I actually doing good when I think I'm doing good, yeah. right? It it really encourages you to take a critical look at, at your own ideas and, and, you know, everything that you're trying to accomplish in the world. I mean, it does mean that the, what they call sort of veneer theory, this idea yes. that civilization is only a thin veneer and that people are, are deep down, that they're all selfish. That is just wrong. That's really, really wrong. Again, uh, it's, what it's, happens- been, it's been hard to read because that's something I've always kind of believed i felt we try really hard to be good people uh, uh, Mm -hmm. potentially against our nature the the, and that's why i was so interested by the subject of this book because it's it's saying Mm -hmm. the exact opposite of that but yeah chapter after after chapter you prove that that's just categorically inaccurate yeah yeah one of my favorite things you know uh about the research uh, or that I, you know, I had most fun with was was looking at reality television. Yeah, uh, because yeah. what reality television makers have have discovered, like twenty years ago, when this all started, you know, with what was it, Big Brother, or you yeah. before that that you had MTV's The Real World. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, they they quickly discovered that if you put people on an island or you know in in a in a villa somewhere far away from from civilization, or you know, you put them in a space alone, just among themselves, nothing happens, you know? Just yeah. nothing really happens. They they have a good time, they play cards, they drink tea. It's, it's terrible. It's horrible for ratings, right? No one will watch a show like that. So they realize that they have to try and force something, right? Create something. So they start giving people alcohol, they start lying to them, deceiving them, setting them up against each other, and then maybe something small happens. And then... They take that out of context and then they try to make a show, but sort of it's really hard to make yeah. good reality television, you know, that people will actually watch because it's not it's not something that happens naturally. And um yeah, this is something that I came across again and again and again. For example, if you if you look at the the, the famous Stanford prison experiment, yes you know, that many people probably know. Uh this experiment that happened in the seventies with uh, Philip Zimbardo, still one of the most famous psychologist alive he had this idea of putting you know just normal healthy students in a fake prison right in the basements of stanford university and so he had 24 of them 12 were guards 12 were prisoners and he just said you know do what you want you know i'll just we'll just look on uh, look on and study you know what happens and the story that ended up in the textbooks and that people still tell each other today is that you know they very quickly develop this horrible sadistic behavior right again an example of this veneer theory right deep yeah. down people are evil and they you put them in this environment and they quickly show who they really are and i mean for 50 years simbardo has told this story it ended up in all the psychology textbooks and so many documentaries novels films you know reality yeah. shows about again i mean it's been so influential and then we just recently discovered, thanks to the work of a French sociologist, Thibault Le Texier, 
who was the first one to actually go into the archives of the Stanford Prison Experiment and showed that it's a hoax. It's an utter, complete hoax. So Zimbardo instructed the students from day one to behave as sadistically as possible. And then these students said, no, uh, we don't want to do that. You know, we just want to have fun, play cards, you know, make a bit bit music. And then he said, no, 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 you don't understand. You have to do this because I need these results for my study because then we can go to the press together and say, look, prisons are such horrible environments. We need to reform the whole American prison system. And you're lefty hippies, right? You want to help me with this. And so that's how it happened. And just a couple of days after the experiment, he immediately went to the press and it became this huge thing. But this is like... I asked the French sociologist, you know, what we can still learn from the Stanford Prison Experiment. And he said, well, it's a good example of everything that can go wrong in science. <laughs> uh, but still, it ended up like this really famous scientific story. Now, where I'm going with this is that later, reality TV makers thought, you know, let's do this experiment again, you know, for, for the BBC, the BBC Prison Experiment. But then let's not interfere, you know, let's just see what happens. And this was a huge disaster for the BBC. Uh, You know, I watched all of the episodes, four in total, and it was so, so boring. You know, I'll never get those hours back. <laughs> it's uh, it's like nothing, nothing happens in the in the first episode. One of the one of the guards says, you know, maybe we can just talk about this as friends. And then in the last episode, they've set up this pacifistic commune, and and they're you know they're drinking tea together and and playing cards in the cantina together. You know, it's <laughs> that is what you really get when you have this fake prison. Nothing yeah. happens. Yeah, but that's not good for television. So. Um, oh. Oh. Yeah, I, that, that's something that I that I discovered again. Yeah, again. I mean, that part was fascinating to read because over 10 years ago, I had um, a TV show in development with the BBC that was, was based mm-hmm. on a load of Stanley Milgram's experiments, but updating them, not only the shock experiments, but the his lost letter experiment, his, his herd mentality yeah, ones, yeah, yeah. all oh, that really? kind of thing. Uh-huh. And... The reason I walked away from it was because they wanted to add stuff that guaranteed a reaction and a result. And it was f- fascinating to hear about this show. Really? They go, oh, that's why. That's huh. why. Because, again, I, I, I was like, well, we can adjust it to, to work now and here's the modernization. I can explain the original experiment, explain how it worked. And they were throwing in all sorts of stuff that was just literally, well, we'll get a reaction out of this, won't we? And... Huh. You oh. kind of see... That is so fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, or, or you see yeah. um, John Ronson's um, Psychopath Test book mm-hmm. talks as well about some of the horrific things that producers of these reality TV shows do to push their their guests to that level. So it was fascinating to hear mm-hmm. that the reason for this is potentially the one time they did it as a true, pure experiment... It was the worst TV yeah. imaginable, and no one had yeah, had exactly. any interest. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the problem with the good in general. I mean, the big downside of the good is that it's boring, right? Yeah, yeah. it's very hard to write a good novel or, you know, create a good movie about people that are, you know, just being pretty nice. There's yeah. this observation from uh, Tolstoy in Anna Karenina, you know, one of his famous novels, where he says that every happy family is happy in exactly the same way, but then every unhappy family is unhappy in a different way, right? So every unhappy family is one novel, but then every happy family is just one boring novel that no one will ever read. 
Yeah. But yeah, but then still, you know, we should remember that the stories we tell about ourselves are not just stories, right? They have mm. real effects on how we behave in real life. So if we keep telling each other that human beings have evolved to be selfish, you know, and that you need to be really careful of other people, especially if you don't know them, then you'll start to design your whole society around it, right? And then it, maybe if you want to have a bit of social security, then people will really distrust you and you have to prove over and over again that you're really sick and and and, and, and depressed enough and, and then maybe the government will give you a bit of money. Uh, if you have an organization, that, then it will be a really competitive organization where people will be really distrustful of each other. If you have a school, it will be this this like typically boarding school, you know, that will be, it's like the perfect environment for bullying. But if you turn it around, you know, you could have a very different kind of society. So that's, that's sort of the point. Stories are not never just stories, you know. They shape who we are and they influence our behavior. Yeah, yeah. So um, oh, oh, one of the things that interested me is obviously when approaching this subject, you must have drawn up kind of a hit list of of the things that you had to kind of had to look into. Yeah. Not even saying had to prove wrong, but, but had to look into. Yeah. And when you looked into them all, and Milgram included, Milgram, Zimbardo, Sheriff, all all of these experiments that are famous, the desire to be famous in many ways seemed to outweigh the desire to be correct or to be accurate or Mm -hmm. to be right. As you said, I mean, you talk about demand characteristics, for example, was a fascinating thing that anyone entering into experiment will more often than not be trying to help will trying to be hard. Yeah. the stanford a prison experiment yeah. was the easiest one that the guards were like well yeah. we want to help you get the results that yeah, that yeah. You're after. you so want to be a good subject yeah, yeah. so the demand may- characteristics are really dangerous for good science yeah you know if, if sort of the participants can guess what the goal of the study is yeah they sort of get an idea of, of where the researcher is going then that's what they're going to give the researcher because people are generally nice and friendly so that's what they're going to do yeah so, but the thing that struck me is there's a risk of f- focusing your theories on the public, on the public mm-hmm. rather than on on academia and 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 improvement. So, how have you found it? Because you yourself are very much a public historian. So, did you have to take stark lessons from the people that you were were looking into to make sure that you were favouring? the correct findings rather than the most the the kind of a confirmation bias i guess rather rather than mm-hmm. the ones that back up mm-hmm. what you're trying to find how yeah, was that yeah, yeah, how yeah, was yeah. that in your journey yeah. on this yeah well you have to be really really wary of your confirmation bias when writing a book like this uh so i asked myself this question continuously you know do i actually believe this uh is this evidence really strong enough or do i do i want to believe this yeah right but there are a couple of things here. So in the first place, actually, when I started working on this book or, you know, five, six years ago, I, I used to have a much more cynical view of human nature. Yeah. So why I wrote the book was that, you know, I had been thinking about ideas like basic income or a participatory democracy, you know, that's not just about career politicians, but also about us, you know, just just average people also participating in, in daily politics. And I started to realize that actually all these ideas that I, were ex- that I was excited about presupposed a different, more hopeful view of human nature. And then yeah. I realized that I actually didn't have it, you know, because <laughs> I had studied history. I, I, I knew about all these famous experiments, you know, Milgram, Zimbardo, you name it. So that's when I started on this journey, like 
can you make the case for a more helpful view of human nature? And then how would you do it? But mm. for example, when uh, in the beginning, I thought, you know, at least I have to make this concession that hunter-gatherers are very violent, right? Because I had read my Stephen Pinker, who wrote, wrote this big book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. I thought, you know, that's one concession I have to make. Then you start doing the research and you go deeper and deeper in the academic work. And you realize, well, actually, it's the people who paint this very dark view of human nature that get all the attention in the press, right? That make the headlines. Yeah. But sort of the boring, dusty academics who are doing, you know, their <laughs> their hard work in the archives, they often have a very different view. And for example, when it comes to how violent hunter-gatherers are, well, most experts believe that war is a quite recent invention, you know, that yeah. really dates from from the moment that we settled down and started doing agriculture, et cetera. But before that, when we were nomadic and togetherers, we, we hardly did any wars. At least there's no archaeological evidence for it. And and if we did, there, I mean, we should have found something. So that's one thing to keep in mind. At yeah. first, I, I was more cynical. I, I sort of wrote the book as a reckoning with my own ideas. And the, the other thing that I tried to do while writing the book, I asked myself the question, will this still hold up 10 years from now? Because so often what you see these days is that there's a new paper in you know these really influential uh magazines like nature or science and then a year later it turns out well actually that's not really the case you know yeah. or there's a new replication and it doesn't hold up especially in psychology so many findings have been debunked in the past couple of years you know it's yeah. it's almost as if the that whole discipline had to start over you know with a with a blank slate and just okay let's start again at the beginning right so that's that's something i kept in mind and then what you start doing actually is you start relying on research traditions so not so much on that fancy scientist with that you know revolutionary new insight but more on like okay so do we have a whole body of evidence on this uh, and sometimes you also come at more common sense conclusions. So one one si simple question I ask in the book is, what is the best way to bring people together, right, if they hate each other? What is the best way to counter racism and hate and prejudices? And the common sense answer would be, well, maybe it would be nice if people would actually meet up sometime, you know, and actually do something together, you know, contact as a remedy. Then you could say, well, would you really need to, uh, you know, scientifically do research on this? But, you know, everything is obvious once you know the answer. So, yes, you do need to. Yeah. And it turns out we have 50 years of evidence from sociology and psychology, you know, again and again when researchers have looked at this. It turns out, yes, contact works. You know, this is what they call contact theory. And um, it's, it's one of the most important insights, actually. And you should really keep in mind when you're trying to build a school system or a democracy is are people actually meeting each other, right? Mm. So... Do we live in these bubbles where you only meet people who are like you? Or if you send your kid to school, will that be a diverse school? Uh, because then, you know, from from your, your earliest years, you'll have the experience of diversity, right? And you'll, you'll be used to that. I mean, it's a very simple insight, but yeah. someone still has to prove it. And so that's what you start doing. You start relying more on those research tradition instead of sort of the, the latest counterintuitive insight. Um, so I guess we'll have to do a podcast 10 years from now and yeah. see... Uh, if if I did if I did you know well enough on this, but yeah, uh, I, I did my best. I love that, and I love the 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 simplicity of pointing out that actually meeting people of the same view of different views is key. Um, is it's one of the things that came up in the section about about Nazis was when a lot of them actually met people who opposed their view was changed because they'd not met people yes. who opposed, and it made me think a friend of mine recently was messaging me on WhatsApp and he was really annoyed because he'd mentioned it in a group and I'd kind of 
I'd stepped aside of the group to talk personally because he was annoyed mm-hmm. that he felt that he was constantly being called a racist, mm. which is worrying from a friend because I, I don't want to... Yeah. I'm, I'm not a big fan of racists, but... Um, and <laughs> I, I kind of spoke to him. I was like, so who's called you a racist? He's like, well, I've read that if you if you believe this, then you're a racist. And this is like, no, but who's, who's called you a racist? And it got down to... It's just his b- belief of these people out there. And it's the same... On either side, this yeah. be- this belief that there's these people constantly attacking you, when re- in reality, they're not. No one's actually been yeah. attacking you. You've just read that you're attacked and you feel attacked. Yeah, so yeah, 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 that yeah. simplicity of actually meeting people and having conversations and having those interactions is yeah is something that we're really lacking in the social media world. And I think it's why it's such a poisonous world. I've, it's yeah, it's yeah, strange yeah, yeah. that I'm very much on social media a lot, I use social media a lot, but I'm convinced it's having far more of a, a, a negative impact than a positive yeah. impact yeah. on society because of what yeah. you're saying here. It perpetuates this constant conflict that, that yeah, potentially the key isn't thing there. Here is the role that distance plays. So distance is, well, you could call it the sort of the source or the root of all evil, right? Yeah. It's very hard to to really hate someone who's standing in front of you, right? Yeah. That you can see in the eyes. Uh, human beings have sort of been designed by evolution to trust one another when we can actually meet each other. I mean, you can see this when you look at, at our bodies, you know? We are the only species in the old animal kingdom that blush, which is a fascinating fact about human beings. I mean, yeah. why do we blush? Chimpanzees don't blush, orangutans don't blush, bonobos don't blush, but we do. So why do we do that? I think a, a convincing explanation is that it is a way for us to establish trust, right? You involuntarily give away your feelings to someone else, what you're, what you're th- thinking deep down. And uh, yeah, it just becomes easier to trust someone who's capable of blushing. That's why yeah. it's really difficult of imagining to trust someone like uh, Trump, because you know you can never imagine him blushing, right? And we also know from research <laughs> that actually those who are in power often find it hard to blush, right? Because power corrupts, you know, it's really... Uh, yeah. A dangerous drug. But also, if you look at our eyes, for example, there's a really striking finding here from biology is that human eyes are really unique. If you look at all the other primates, and there are more than 200 species of primates, um, they have sort of black around their eyes, what they call the sclera, right? And they're sort of brown or black. So that makes it really hard to follow their gaze to see what they're actually looking at. Um, But then we have white around our eyes. We have white sclera which means it's really easy to see what you're looking at, right? Or what other people are looking at. And obviously, this plays a huge, import, a hugely important role in establishing trust, right? If you're like a chimpanzee, then it's a bit like a, a member of the mafia, you know, with the sunglasses on, right? Like hiding yeah. the gaze. Um, but we can't. We just give it away. We, we can't help ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this really... So we've been sort of designed by evolution to trust each other in this way. But that only only works, of course, if you're actually close to each other. You know, on social media, you have a very different situation. You know, where you're all behind your own laptop, and and this is a, really a thing that that I stumbled upon again and again while you know working on this book. For example, if you look at the history of warfare, it's actually really difficult to be violent or to kill someone who's close to you, right, or, or who's like standing in front of you. Yeah. If you look at, for example, bayonets. Most soldiers can't do it and have never been able to do it, to just shove a bayonet down someone, right? We know from, you know, for example, after the Battle of the Somme or Battle of Waterloo, 
that, you know, very small percentage of the wounds was caused by bayonets. Almost all these soldiers were killed by artillery, right? Because it's psychologically much easier to just push a button and then have an explosion somewhere far away and kill some people that are just abstractions to you, right? But to look someone in the eye and then to actually kill is almost impossible. One of the most fascinating findings here has come from uh, uh, an American historian and and, uh, military man who was with the U.S. Army and was the first one to discover that actually most Allied soldiers, and probably also German soldiers, but we know for sure about Allied soldiers, didn't shoot during the Second World War. Yeah. They just couldn't do it. On average, only 15 to 25%, in his estimate, could actually fire their guns. Most didn't do it. Why? Well, there's just this psychological thing within us that sort of holds us back, right? You really have to learn to be violent. And that is possible, right? So you can condition soldiers, you can brainwash them. There, there are ways to sort of dehumanize the enemy as well, psychologically, and this all makes it easier. And I mean, this is a really dark truth about us as a species that we're capable of actually doing that. Yeah. But it's not something that comes natural to us, right? So we like sex. That is, you know, everyone understands what's, at least most of us understand what's nice about sex. And you don't have to teach someone well, or, or you don't have to teach a teenager to enjoy sex, right? That's something that... Yeah. It's, it's intuitively enjoyed. Same as food, right? You don't have to sort of, your body knows that it's good for you because you're hungry and then you want food. Uh, but with violence, it's very different. You really have to learn how to be violent. It's a long road. And often you damage yourself in the process. So yeah. again, we know that soldiers who come back from wars and have actually killed someone else, they often develop PTSD, you know, because not only have they killed someone else, but they've also killed some, something inside themselves, which suggests to me that, you know, we're not born yeah, to be violent. But but again, it, it 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 comes back as well. I feel to to what you were talking about, how we represent things in the arts, um, because you talk about how 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 Hollywood violence has as much to do with real violence as pornography has to do with real mm-hmm. sex. But in both cases, the myth influences the reality. Mm-hmm. Right, S- sexual practices have changed and developed and been influenced by what we we see in pornography therefore potentially violence and our ability to exact violence is going to change the more it's portrayed on screen i said it was was fascinating to read those stats about war because i realized my only real experience of war is in films where they're happily shooting excitedly shooting away and then you read how those small percentages and the amount of guns that were found loaded and unused and things like that on battlefields is is fascinating yeah, yeah. so yeah no, it's interesting I mean, how those series like game of thrones yeah i mean game of thrones has always been described as sort of this realistic series and i mean i always have to laugh a little bit well obviously there are dragons in there which maybe are not very realistic <laughs> but sort of it's realistically seen as realistic because of, for, for example the violence right but it's so i mean in game of thrones people are continuously shoving swords down each other right yeah but, the, I mean, people are capable of that. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it's really, really hard. It's really hard. You really have to, yeah, go down a very long and dark road before you're able to do that. Yeah. Um, so, it's not so something that comes naturally. As we're at the hour, Mark, I'll, I'll wrap things up here. And one of the things that, that j- jumped out to me as potentially re- relevant now, more relevant now than when you wrote it, if, they, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, was when you talk about the dark ages that different civilizations have been through where their civilization or society has crumbled 
and it's been seen as these huge dark patches in history. And you kind mm-hmm. of put forward that actually they may have been a reprieve, a, a, a chance mm-hmm. for us to to come back and maybe remove some of the n- negative things that society had put upon us. And I was just wondering your thoughts on the world post-lockdown, I guess. Because, I mean, ecologically, it's been undeniable that it's been a reprieve on the world, on on, on, yeah. on the lack of flying, the lack of pollution. Yeah. The, the change in that has been a, a massive reprieve. How do you think this could affect us as, 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 as people? Because we have also seen, yeah. again, rather than riots in the streets... Uh, we have seen outpourings of support of people mm-hmm. going and buying sh- a shopping for neighbours that that they've never met, of people donating, yeah. applauding, all these these different things. There's questions on the impact of them, but all these different things we have seen society seem to care more about everyone in this period. Yeah, yeah. But we have also had the distance that you've talked about being an an issue. We haven't. Be- been able to see the whites of each other's eyes for for some time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. As an ending, what do you feel the potential positives could come out of out of this situation yeah. that we're currently in? You know, recently a journalist asked me, "What what will the next eighty years look like?" <laughs> you know, I couldn't help but laughing because I thought it. I find it hard to predict predict the next eight hours in my own life, right? So, <laughs> yeah, let, let alone the next eighty years. I mean, as a historian, you know that. We have absolutely no clue, right? The future is always fundamentally open. And that's also what should give us hope because hope is about possibilities, right? We're not on this, uh, this roller coaster. We actually have power to change our own lives and change our own futures. And so what I hope is that this crisis will give us an opportunity to move to a different view of human nature and to redesign our societies, maybe from the bottom up, with different values. So if you look at the last 40 years, we have been governed by, you know, the values of competition and, and selfishness. And, and often this has been advocated as a force for good, right? So the greed is good idea. Yeah. Um, and we've seen the results, right? An epidemic of loneliness, of anxiety and of depression, of increasing inequality, tax evasion, you name it, right? And in the past couple of years, it's been cl- becoming clearer and clearer to more and more people that, you know, we need something different. Now, when the crash came in 2008, you know, sort of people were knew what they were against, right? They knew they were against austerity or the establishment and they were angry, but they really didn't have an alternative. What my hope is, is that this crisis is different because actually we've done our homework, right? Mm. There have been so many ambitious and brave people, whether you talk about, you know, a brilliant economists like Thomas Piketty or Mariana Matsukato, one of my favorite economists, or you think about protesters like Greta Thunberg, you know, who spearheaded, you know, the biggest climate justice movement the world has ever seen, uh, or think about this this formerly unknown Asian American businessman Andrew Yang, you know, who's become a very unlikely presidential candidate and really yeah. made waves in the U.S. with the idea of universal basic income. So, I think now we're much better prepared, sort of, to to handle this crisis, or at least to inject new ideas in the debate and and make sure they're taken seriously. And then maybe historians will later say that this was a turning point, right? That the age of neoliberalism, the age of selfishness and competition, etc., ended, and that we moved to something, I don't know, maybe you should call it some, something like neorealism, right? Where we had an updated view of what it means to be realistic, right? 
what it means to be real. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, that is actually a much hopeful, more hopeful view. That's what I hope. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, th thank you very much for your time. Um, Utopia for Realists is available now and, and Humankind is available to, to pre-order. I want to in, encourage anyone who is listening to, you, you've got time at the moment. So open up your Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever else and just search bookstore and look at what your your local bookstore is. And if you click on it, it will mm. normally say if they've got a website. And if they have, order from them because they're important to yeah. to support and keep alive in these times. And I know in the normal endlessly busy world it's so much easier to just one click order from amazon but you've got time now to order from local bookstores and support bookstores all over the the country and in your local area but thank you very much it's been a pleasure as ever it feels like we're gonna to have to do this every couple of years and just yeah check in and that. see and see what else has happened <laughs> to uh to inform us so thank you for your time and uh yeah stay safe and uh and, and well thanks looking forward to the next time thank you very much <laughs> and see you soon You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was my second round with Rutger Bregman. And as you will have heard at the end there, we both enjoy having these chats so much that we've suggested we do it again um, at some point. We will have put links in the, in the description on iTunes and all that to Rutger's uh, moment at, at the conference um where he he rallied he talked about the fact that that all these people had come in on, on private jets and we'll also put his argument on cnn they're linked in the in the description um thank you for tuning in i'll be back next week i don't know what with i've not recorded it yet i've got a good few potential returning guests lined up i've got one or two potential guests who i wouldn't have been able to get on otherwise i don't think so i'm going to try and do them over zoom i'm thinking of doing a behind the music of my no commercial breaks album because the distraction pieces one went down so well we've got a few more drunk cast ideas but really after that last one we all need a bit of recovery so let's chill out on that um i want to do one with the the, the we are lizards guys the guys i ran my club night with for years so yeah a lot of things in the pipeline, but I don't know what any of them are yet. So I will see you next week for the Distraction Pieces podcast. And remember to shout about this episode far and wide. I think genuinely, regardless of whether it's my podcast or not, I think this is a podcast that a lot of people could do with hearing right now because we are quite negative and quite angry, as was I. And as am I sometimes. Obviously, I'm not completely cured, but a thing like this really... It, it it wakes you up and weirdly just after i i recorded th this podcast i went on t twitter and ian lee previous guest and just f friend a person i adore he was getting quite down at the way a lot of humans were reacting to lockdown it was that weekend where a lot of people were going out and all things like that and it, i was inspired to tweet him and it really helped he ended up deleting his initial tweet and giving a little thank you because i just kind of pointed out that i mean yeah there's some people who are breaking the the lockdown rules and the social distancing rules but also there's millions upon millions of the vast vast majority who are completely obeying 
all the rules for an unprecedented amount of time to have this kind of lockdown and to have it so widely obeyed and adhered to as said by millions upon millions the vast 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 majority is amazing so we could look at how awesome that is and how amazing humans are rather than get really angry because we've got social media now in the news and we hear about the worst blotches on on society and on the world and we hear about them all the time so it feels like they're constant and they're the majority anyway i really enjoyed this podcast as you can tell um i'll be back next week Ta-ta, stay safe stay home if you, if you want to stay alert as well you do you but let's stick with the more uh, descriptive and specific instructions eh? i've turned it i turned it negative at the end what a dickhead. Stay safe, stay l- lovely, and stay wonderful, you beautiful people. See you next week. Ta-ta.